Today on Peace Talks Radio, stories about and the voices of six peacemaking greats. Martin Luther King Jr. We must continue to delve deeper into the philosophy of nonviolent resistance. Nelson Mandela. We must therefore act together as a united people for national reconciliation, for nation building, for the birth of a new world. Cesar Chavez. We have created the foundation to what I think is going to be a very good working relationship with the grower community in Delano. Dolores Huerta. And if we do not come together, we do not organize, then all of the justice uh, goals that we want to achieve are never going to happen. The Dalai Lama. Today's world, concept of war is outdated. And Mahatma Gandhi, remembered by his grandson Arun Gandhi. We have to become the change we wish to see in the world. Six peace greats today from Peace Talks Radio. This is a Peace Talks Radio special from the archive of the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're calling it Peace Greats Part 1, featuring memorable moments from episodes we've done spotlighting Nobel Prize winners and more famous peacemaking names from history. While our series goes out of its way to feature the less heralded peace workers throughout history and in our world today, the personalities who rise to the top of world consciousness often do so for very good and powerful reasons that deserve more focused attention. And today we've gathered six whose stories in the 20th century and a couple still in the 21st century seem linked in many ways. And each has left succeeding generations inspiration to build on. And we've selected some inspiring words from each and some analysis on each to create one big, always useful dose of peace thought for us all to take in. We'll present a bit from each in this program, but for a larger dose, head to our website for an hour-long version of Highlights or to hear the complete programs from which these excerpts came. Asked to name peace leaders, these are the names most people on the street would come up with. The Dalai Lama, Martin Luther King Jr., Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, Nelson Mandela. And we'll begin with the one who inspired and informed all of those others, Mohandas K. Gandhi, nonviolent crusader for racial equality in South Africa and against British imperial rule in India in the first half of the 20th century. Writing in Time Magazine's 20th Century Ending Special Edition, Johanna McCreary observed of Mohandas K. Gandhi, quote, his image offers a shining set of ideals to emulate, individual freedom, political liberty, social justice, nonviolent protest, passive resistance, religious tolerance. His work and his spirit awakened the 20th century to ideas that serve as a moral beacon for all times. Our Carol Boss talked to Gandhi's grandson, Arun Gandhi, who spent months at a time visiting his grandfather. He offered this story that, when I heard it for the first time many years ago, I've noticed has stayed with me ever since. I think about it every time I have a chance to save a natural resource, which means many, many times during each day. I had this little pencil in my hand, and I threw that pencil away because uh, I thought it was too small for me to use. And that evening when I asked him for a new pencil, instead of giving me one, he subjected me to a lot of questions. He wanted to know how the pencil became small and where did I throw it away and all that kind of thing. And I couldn't understand why he was making such a fuss over a little pencil until he told me to go out and look for it. And I said, you must be joking. I said, you don't expect me to look for a little pencil in the dark? 
He said, oh, yes, I do. Here's a flashlight. Take this and go out and look for the pencil. And I must have spent about two hours searching for it. And when I finally found it and brought it to him, he said, now I want you to sit here and learn two very important lessons. The first lesson is that even in the making of a simple thing like a pencil, we use a lot of the world's natural resources, and when we throw them away, we are throwing away the world's natural resources, and that is violence against nature. And the second lesson is that even in the uh, you, you know in an affluent society, we can, we can afford to buy all these things in bulk. And so we overconsume the resources of the world, and because we overconsume them, we are depriving people elsewhere of these resources, and they have to live in poverty, and that is violence against humanity. And that was the first time I realized that all these little things that we do every day, consciously and unconsciously, are uh, all acts of violence, either violence against nature or violence against other human beings. And then to drive home this message, he made me draw a family tree of violence uh, on the same principles as a genealogical tree with violence as the grandparent with two offsprings, physical violence and passive violence. And every day before I went to bed, I had to examine everything that happened during the day and analyze it and put it in their appropriate places on that tree. If it was the kind of violence where physical force is used, then it would go under physical violence. But if it's the kind of violence where no force is used, and yet, uh, you know, I've been able to hurt people, then it would go under passive violence. And when I began to do this, within a few months, I filled up a whole wall in my room with acts of passive violence. And that's when I realized how much uh, passive violence we commit. And then grandfather explained to me the connection between the two. He said, we commit passive violence all the time, every day, consciously and unconsciously. And that generates anger in the victim, and the victim then resorts to physical violence to get justice. So it is passive violence that fuels the fire of physical violence. So logically, if we want to put out the fire of physical violence, we have to cut off the fuel supply. And since the fuel supply comes from each one of us, we have to become the change we wish to see in the world. Arun Gandhi, grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, speaking to us on Peace Talks Radio in 2007. And if you're like me, anytime you leave the water running excessively and then decide to turn it off or leave an unnecessary light on in the room and slip back in to turn it off, anytime you do something like that, I'll bet you'll remember Arun Gandhi's pencil stub that his grandfather had him go back to look for. I'm not certain that the Dalai Lama, our next featured peace great, heard that particular story, but listen to this tale told by one of his biographers, Pico Iyer, to our Suzanne Kreider, and you might think that he did. When I met him uh, the day of the Nobel Prize, I remember as our conversation was finished, we were walking out of the room and we were going to the front door and suddenly he said, oh, I've forgotten something. And he went back and he turned off the lights in the room. 
And he said to me, it's such a simple thing. It, it's, it's not a religious thing. It's not a, a huge thing that's going to change the world. But if a few people, a few times every day, remember this very simple, practical act, that our planet will be in a healthier state. And it's interesting because I say that now, and it's been 20 years since that moment. And in those 20 years, I feel as if I've read so many books by wise men, and I've been lucky enough to meet many, many intelligent and, and, and enlightened people, and I, I've come upon great inspirations by myself. And alas, none of those ideas has stuck. But that simple practical thing of turning off the light, I remember from that one moment, and probably every day for the last 20 years, there are a few times each day when I'm leaving a room and I think, oh, wait a minute, no harm in just going back and turning off the light. And I think that's the way that his, his wisdom uh, incarnates itself, as it were, in the world. And, and I think that's one reason why he's become such a member of the, uh, of the planet and why so many people are happy to claim him as their spiritual friend or advisor. Because, as you were saying, uh, this, this has nothing to do with steeping yourself in intricate texts or meditating or doing all the things that it's difficult for us non-monastics to do. It's just uh, being aware of things. And uh, that any one of us can, can do a little better any day. In April of 2008, in Seattle's biggest football stadium, over 50,000 people of all faiths and no faith, of all ethnicities and orientations, gathered on a rare sunny day to nearly fill up the stands. They didn't come to see an NFL showdown. They didn't come to hear the Rolling Stones. They came to see a little 72-year-old man in maroon and yellow robes sit in a chair on a canopied stage in one of the end zones. They came to hear this man speak broken English for about 40 minutes. They came to hear Tenzin Jatsu, a Tibetan monk, talk about peace, nonviolence, and compassion. Whenever we face problems, different interests, disagreements, a realistic method is nonviolent dialogue. That's the only way. Tenzin Yatsu is known to most as the 14th Dalai Lama, the exiled head of state and spiritual leader of Tibet. Basically, today's world is not like 19th century, 20th century's world. Today's world is something new reality. That means every part of the world heavily interconnected. So under this circumstances, according this new reality, the very concept of we and they no longer there. Whole world should consider part of you. Therefore, according that reality, concept of war is outdated. And the final thing that must be said uh, in in this context, I just wrote a long piece for the New York Review of Books, uh, starting with uh, the Dalai Lama saying, as he's been saying recently, that his policy has failed. Uh, Last time I saw him in November, we spent a week together, and over and over he said, my policy has achieved nothing, it's failed. I want to turn to other Tibetans to come up with alternative ideas. And I think the reason he was saying that was as much as anything to goad his fellow Tibetans to take more responsibility for their destinies. What he's really trying to do is to prepare the Tibetan people for the time when he's no longer around, and in fact to help them through the transition. So, as it were, to coach them into how to um, act after he's dead 
while he's alive. He's doing exactly what any parent should do uh, with his children. And by saying he's failed, he's essentially putting the responsibility onto the Tibetans and saying, um, you face the situation and you think of a good response to it, as I know you can and, uh, and you will. And I think the one predicament of the Tibetan people, both for the Dalai Lama and for the people themselves, is that all these years, because of the ritual power of the Dalai Lama, whom they regard as an incarnation of a god, um, the Tibetans have been very happy to leave really all decision-making to the Dalai Lama. And that's relatively okay because this Dalai Lama is such a seasoned leader, but uh, he's not going to be around forever and he knows that he almost has to force his people to be true Democrats and to take power into their own hands rather than to defer to his authority. I know one of the things I've, I've loved that he's been saying recently is people will often come and ask him for their, his blessing and he says, blessings come from yourself. There's nothing I can give you that you don't have inside yourself already. So blessings are really the result of our actions. If you act responsibly and kindly, to the people around you, that generates blessings. So please don't look to me for blessings, but look to yourself. And you have a much greater power than you could begin to understand. And that's one reason why he always stresses his humanity. Every time he delivers a lecture before a large audience, one of the first things he says is, I'm nothing special. You won't get any magic or miracles for me. I'm just a human being dealing with the same challenges and sometimes sorrows as you are. Uh, and if you see anything worthwhile in me, that's just a reflection of a capacity you have within yourself. He's traveling really to remind us of our power rather than to tell us about his power. Pico Iyer, who's traveled with and written about the Dalai Lama extensively. We're celebrating some peace greats today on Peace Talks Radio. Hear much more from Pico Iyer about the Dalai Lama in our hour-long episode of this program and our original full show on the Dalai Lama at peacetalksradio.com. Next, a little time about one peace great from a conversation with another peace great. We talked with Dolores Huerta, who worked side-by-side -side with Cesar Chavez promoting labor rights among migrant farm workers in the 20th century. Carol Boss interviewed Dolores Huerta on our program in 2014. In the summer of 1965, it seemed like strike fever was sweeping California. And I wanted to ask you to describe the scene in the meeting halls on the day of the vote to walk out of the vineyard in that summer. And I do want to add to that question because uh, a lot of people think, oh, well, uh, Caesar strolled through the fields or went into a field to talk to farm workers and everybody came out on strike. It didn't happen that way at all. We started organizing farm workers in 1962 uh, when we left the community service organization, and uh, the strike did not start until 1965. During those three years, there was a lot of painstaking organizing, you know, meeting with farm workers in their homes, meeting with families, convincing them that they had power, convincing them that they could make changes, convincing them that if they didn't do this, nobody was going to do it for them. So in 1965, when the strike happened, the workers were already organized. And since the Filipino farm workers came out on strike, then we had to support them. But it was, of course, very thrilling when uh, we got the workers together, and uh, you know, then they, you know, had they had to take a strike vote, and they, when they did, of course, it was very exhilarating. It sounded like cries of strike literally rocked the meeting halls. Well, yes, yes, it did. Yes, it did, and it was very uh, scary for the workers too, because you're talking about people that were very poor. Uh, when we went out on strike in 1965, the wages for the farm workers were like 90 cents an hour. 
And uh, the, the initial strike, we said we're going to strike for a dollar twenty-five. And uh, before, within a couple of months, the growers raised the wages to a dollar twenty-five. Uh, but then we knew that the the real issue was getting recognition, uh, getting the rights that the workers could have representation, uh, so that they could have uh, uh, collective bargaining agreements, which really bound the growers legally. That not only could they raise the wa- had to raise the wages and the workers could negotiate their wages, but that they also uh, had to provide other benefits like drinking water, toilets, uh, unemployment insurance, uh, uh, things that the workers did not have. That, you know, uh, protections against uh, uh, when they would be fired unjustly or you know, laid off when they shouldn't have been laid off. So they needed additional protections, not just wages. And that's what a collective bargaining agreement is between employers and their workers. And that's what we were shooting for. Uh, getting something that was enforceable by law, and it couldn't just be taken away. Of course, that strike grew into a national boycott, and um, you directed that national boycott, didn't you? Well, we actually split it up into regions. I uh, ran the boycott from Chicago to New York, from Canada uh, to Florida, uh, on the on the East Coast, and uh, after we were, able, and then we had uh, other people that ran it on the West Coast. Uh, when we think of the boycott, we have to think of that as a nonviolent economic strategy, because since we couldn't win in the fields, you know, we were getting arrested. Uh, they had these court injunctions on us that limited the number of pickets that we could have uh, at a thousand-acre field, only five people to a field, so that the strike breakers couldn't even see us. And that's why we had to go to the boycott. Later in his life, Cesar Chavez addressed a community group about the power of the boycott. And so. We said, why go to the politicians? Why not, why not go directly and go to the marketplace where you can put direct pressure on those corporations that can find a solution for you? That, we recommend that. And we, long, we live long enough to know that it works. You see, we hear that, the old cliche that politics makes strange bedfellows. Boycotts make stranger bedfellows still. We can learn a lot from Dr. King and from Gandhi. You know, when the the bus boycott, there was no way in the world that those blacks could have ever won it politically. They couldn't. Politically, they didn't have any power. And they came up with the idea of the boycott. And the boycott began to work. Gandhi's boycotts, some were tremendous guys. Some were strokes of geniuses. And liberated the whole country without war. We just missed it because people were, there wasn't a shooting war, so that's not important. But we should reflect on those instances when things were done without a shooting war. Those are important things to reflect on, understand, and appreciate, and try to replicate. When things get done without a shooting war, that's what we should try to replicate, says Cesar Chavez in a talk late from his life, posted to YouTube. More about Mahatma Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, Cesar Chavez, and Dolores Huerta later this hour. Next, words from and about Nelson Mandela and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. As our Peace Talks radio special, Peace Greats Part 1 continues right after this break.
This is a Peace Talks radio special, drawn from the archive of the award-winning series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider and Carol Boss. Always toward the top of a list of peace greats is Nelson Mandela, who survived 26 years in prison in apartheid South Africa, emerging to become the country's president and to craft new policies, healing, and eventually a measure of peace and tolerance. We are moved by a sense of joy and exhilaration when the grass turns green and the flowers bloom. Nelson Mandela's inauguration speech when he became president of South Africa in 1994. The time for the healing of the wounds has come. The moment to breach the chasms that divides us has come. The time to build is upon us. We have at last achieved our political emancipation. We pledge ourselves to liberate all our people from the continuing bondage of poverty, deprivation, suffering, gender, and other discrimination. We succeeded to take our last steps to freedom in conditions of relative peace. We commit ourselves to the construction of a complete, just, and lasting peace. We understand it still that there is no easy road to freedom. We know it well that none of us acting alone can achieve success. We must therefore act together as a united people for national reconciliation, for nation building, for the birth of a new world. Let there be justice for all. Let there be peace for all. Let there be work, bread, water, and salt for all. Let each know that for each, the body, the mind, and the soul have been freed to fulfill themselves. Never, never, And never again shall it be that this beautiful land will again experience the oppression of one by another and suffer the indignity. (laughs) And suffer the indignity of being the skunk of the world. The sun shall never set on so glorious a human achievement. Let freedom reign. God bless Africa. I thank you. The inaugural speech of Nelson Mandela, becoming president of South Africa in 1994. Let's hear more now from radio documentarian Joe Richmond, who spent over a year researching the story for an award-winning series called Mandela, an audio history. Joe, when you talk to so many people about another person, um, inevitably a few things are heard consistently. What would you say most all of your interview subjects agreed upon in their assessment or characterization of Nelson Mandela? What so many of them would say about Mandela, and it's been said so often that it's a bit of a cliche, but it's a cliche that I think is true, is that what he gave to that moment, to the country and to that moment in history, 
was getting out of prison and not feeling bitter, not feeling angry, but being able to go, you know, to the negotiating table to be able to, to, to look forward. And then what was the most unexpected thing you heard about him that maybe isn't part of what you have, you know, learned to expect to hear about Nelson Mandela? Well, you know, I th- we, we think now of Mandela as this kind of wonderful grandfathery, smiley figure and just this lovable old man. Um, but, you know, you go back in history and you're reminded that, um, that he was considered a terrorist. And, you know, by many definitions, he was a terrorist in the sense that he led the, uh, the movement to, to take the movement away from nonviolence, to start, you know, a bombing campaign and, and, to, and to arm the struggle. I had made a statement where I called for armed struggle. Naturally, there was a great deal of resistance from the leadership. But I believed that we were moving into that situation because the government had left us with no other alternative. It's really hard to separate, you know, uh, any moment in history from the context in which it happens. History is never as black and white and as easy as, as we like to think. What does his story offer to inspire and inform the still oppressed people around the globe? It's just important to remember that no one expected South Africa to change as peacefully, in a sense, as it did. And, you know, peacefully is a relative term. It was it was ugly in so many ways, and so many people were killed, and there was a lot of fighting um, among many groups. But there was, but you know, something happened in that country at that time to allow a huge tectonic shift in that country to happen with um, relatively little bloodshed. And there are still so many places where uh, people are fighting for something similar. And so anytime that there is a movement that in a sense over a long period of time, in a sense succeeds, it's like historical inspiration. Right, it's a template, it's a possibility. I mean, you just have to know that it's worked before, (laughs) you know? What do you think this story has to offer to inspire and inform people just trying to manage any conflict in their lives? Hmm. Pick Bota, who is uh, one of the one of the um, the ministers of the National Party, the white ruling party, talks about that when they sat down, that Mandela made this gave this whole history of the Afrikaner people, and that that's how he started. You know, basically saying. I understand your history, I understand your issues, I understand where you're coming from. And I think, and, and that obviously made a huge impact on him, you know, because as he says, you know, here I am about to sit down at the negotiating table with someone I've spent two decades thinking of as a terrorist. And he's studied me, he studied, you know, my own grievances and my own history. I think there's just something incredibly powerful about understanding your enemy both as maybe tactically and strategically, but much more than that, understanding the other side. Mandela made a point of doing that, and I think it's something that, um, it's a lesson that I, that I kind of take away from this whole history, is that, you know, you have these preconceived notions about the way someone is or the way some history is. You dig a little more and you realize 
you weren't you're not right <laughs> you know there's always something a little more complicated there and another peace grade who made a point of understanding his opponents in his nonviolent resistance movement was of course Martin Luther King Jr. We must continue to delve deeper into the philosophy of nonviolent resistance. That is something about this method that has power. And I know that there are those who will ridicule it occasionally, but it has worked miracles in the South. It has morality with it because it gives us the opportunity to work to secure moral ends through moral means. This is the morality of it, but it has certain practical consequences. It exposes the moral defenses of the opponent, somehow weakens his morale, and all at the same time it is working on his, on, on his conscience. It disarms him, and he just doesn't know what to do with it. If he puts you in jail, that's all right. If he doesn't put you in jail, fine. If he beats you up, that's all right. If he doesn't beat you up, that's all right. If he tries to kill you, all right. You develop the quiet courage of dying if necessary without killing. If he tries to threaten you, all right, if he doesn't. And that is something about it which causes the opponent not to know what to do. Now, he would know what to do with violence. He could call out the state militia. He could call out the National Guard and kill hundreds and hundreds of innocent people and argue that they are inciting a riot. They know how to handle violence, but they proved over and over again that they don't know how to handle non-violence. They try to handle it by throwing us in jail. But what happens? We go into the jails of Jackson, Mississippi and transform these jails from dungeons of shame to havens of freedom and human dignity. Can't stop it. I believe firmly that this is the way. Now, that is another aspect of it, about this method. And people ask me about it all the time. So, what do you mean when you tell us to love these people who are beating on us and bombing our houses and kicking our children around? What in the world do you mean when you say love such people? And I always have to stop and try to define the meaning of love in this area. And interestingly enough, Greek philosophy comes to our aid at this point. There are three words in the Greek language for love. One of them is the word eros. Now eros is a sort of aesthetic love. Uh, the philosopher Plato talks about it a great deal in his dialogues, the yearning of the soul for the realm of the divine. It has come to us to mean a sort of romantic love, and so we all know about eros. We've experienced it. We've read about it in the beauties of literature. Then the Greek language talks about phileo, which is another level of love. It is an intimate affection between personal friends. Then the Greek language has another word called agape. Agape is more than romantic love. Agape is more than friendship. Agape is not something affectionate. Agape is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Theologians would say that it is the love of God operating in the human heart. And when one rises to love on this level, he loves men not because he likes them, but he loves every man because God loves him. And he goes on with that. And so he rises to the level of hating the system rather than the individual who is caught up in that system. 
He loves the person and hates the evil deed. Yes. This is the way that we will get out of this dark night of oppression and make of this nation a better nation. It means that we can stand up and allow the, allow the opposition to know that we will not accept injustice. Yes. We will stand up against it with our lives, yes. but we will never stoop down to the level of violence and hatred. And we will come to that point when we will be able to convince him that a new world is emerging. As an orator, talk about how Dr. King combines a poetic lyricism with content that actually helps listeners and his audience confront their fears and overcome them at the same time. He understood that one major role that he was called upon to play was essentially to say to people, it is understandable if you feel some fear, but do not let the fear overcome you. Martin Luther King's colleague, friend, and occasional speechwriter, the late Vincent Harding. Because we are in connections with the rightness of the universe and the spirit of justice and rightness is on our side, just as we are on its side. Keep going. Do not allow understandable fears to stop us. Dr. Harding, talk with me for a moment about this section in this speech where he confronts, Dr. King, confronts the concept of normalcy. I know that is a cry today in Alabama. We see it in numerous editorials. When will Martin Luther King, SCLC, SNCC, and all of these civil rights agitators and all of the white clergymen and labor leaders and students and others get out of our community and let Alabama return to normalcy? Well, it seems to me that that is, again, the role of the loving, demanding pastor prophet saying to us not just that we have to go back to anything, but that we have to go forward to the places that we have not yet been in terms of our potentials. And he is saying in a deep way to Alabama as one example that what you have experienced in the past must not be allowed to be your judgment of what is good and what is necessary and what is needed for your life. You must now begin to envision a new society, as he put it, a new normalcy, which brings us together, black and white, into a new, a new Alabama. I have a message that I would like to leave with Alabama this evening. That is exactly what we don't want and we will not allow it to happen. For we know that it was normalcy in marriage. Uh -huh. yeah. that led to the brutal murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson. Uh -huh. yeah. It was normalcy in Birmingham. Yeah. 
that led to the murder on Sunday morning of four beautiful, unoffending, innocent girls. It was now mostly on Highway 80. Yes, sir. It led state troopers to use tear gas and horses and billy clubs against unarmed human beings who were simply marching for justice. It was now mostly by a cafe in Selma, Alabama, that led to the brutal beating of Reverend Reverend James Rare. It is now mostly all over our country. Yes, sir. Which leaves the Negro perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. It is normal, see, all over Alabama that prevents the Negro from becoming a registered voter. No, we will not allow Alabama to return to normal. In a sense, he was saying the same thing to the country. Do not accept segregation either by law or by practice, as an acceptable way of life. In a sense, he was saying, we can do much better than that. (laughs) And if you allow yourself to move in that direction, you will see how beautiful we can possibly be. Only normalcy that we will settle for is the normalcy that recognizes the dignity and worth of all of God's children. The only normalcy that we will settle for is the normalcy that allows judgment to run down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. The only normalcy that we will settle for is the normalcy of brotherhood, the normalcy of true peace, the normalcy of justice. And so as we go away this afternoon, let us go away more than ever before committed to this struggle and committed to nonviolence. I know you're asking today, how long will it take? Somebody's asking, how long will prejudice blind the visions of men? Just as he was boldly asking his audience to confront their fears, it seems that he tackles maybe the next most common objection in social movements, that change takes too long. How long? Not long, he says again and again toward the end of this speech. In his private moments, was there a sense that things in 1965 were starting to move faster than they ever had and that he, he could really himself believe in the, the not long of his own speech? I am not sure about what he was thinking concerning movement at that time. By 1965, many of the young people of the black community, especially in the North, there was evidence that they were growing impatient, that they were growing more angry, and that they were feeling a need, which is, as you know, so terribly American, to get everything done now speaking about the various tasks that had to be done, Martin knew that those things could not be done overnight, could not be done, quote, now. What he knew was they had to begin now. People had to commit themselves to do the work now, but he was much too wise 
and much too compassionate, a teacher, a pastor, a leader, to give the impression that somehow things would be immediately changed. At the same moment, he did not want people to feel that never was the answer either. So he kept calling, not long. How long, not long. Luther King Jr. wrapping up his remarks on March 25, 1965, at the end of a third civil rights march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, with 25,000 looking on. You also heard comments from King's colleague and King's scholar, the late Vincent Harding, too. More ahead about the work of Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, more also from and about the Dalai Lama and Mahatma Gandhi's grandson, Arun Gandhi, when our Peace Talks radio special, Peace Greats, Part 1, continues after this break. I'm Paul Ingalls with Carol Boss and Suzanne Kreider, and you're listening to a Peace Talks radio special we've called Peace Greats, Part 1. All the complete programs that today's highlights were drawn from can be found online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where all the programs in our series are archived going back to 2002. Today's special features compelling moments from our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, specifically spotlighting six legendary peacemakers. As we've heard, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, and in a moment, Carol Boss's interview with Dolores Huerta, but right now Boss talks with Cesar Chavez scholar Jose Antonio Orozco, 
about the work that Chavez and Huerta did on behalf of the United Farm Workers. So according to Chava La Cosa, as the farm workers' struggle was called, it attempted to improve the working conditions, of course, of farm workers, but he also saw it as developing a larger mission over time. I think that uh, Cesar Chavez saw it a certain part that the the reason that uh, the farm workers were struggling was a, an unequal power balance between the growers and the farm workers. And he started to see that it, it was about various kinds of power inequalities in American society in general. And he started to see, uh, he makes this connection between the violence that he saw when the growers would call the police out or they would hire security to protect the fields and that they would push uh, the farm workers around. He saw connections between that kind of violence that was going on and violence and, uh, in the streets and in, in, in the riots during the 1960s. And then also uh, the idea of the United States being involved in Vietnam. And so he started to see that there were uh, connections of structural violence uh, around the world and started to put all of this together that, you know, the reason that the farm workers were struggling was that because agriculture was becoming corporatized and that there were people who were willing to use violence to protect those corporate interests against the interests of the farm workers. When people think about dedication to nonviolence, most people think of Gandhi King, maybe the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. What does... Cesar Chavez bring that is unique. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, what's interesting is that typically uh, when you talk about nonviolence, you have this kind of litany of heroes that are engaged in nonviolence. So people will say, oh, yeah, Tolstoy, Thoreau, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and sometimes they'll mention Chavez or, or Dolores Huerta. But uh, I think that Chavez uh, offers a, a in, in his practice and in, in the way he talked about nonviolence was very, very different from the way in which, for instance, Gandhi and Martin Luther King thought about the effectiveness of, of nonviolence. And he didn't necess- he didn't believe, of course, in violence, but he did believe that sometimes, in order to achieve justice, you have to create tension in a community. You have to create a kind of disruption so that the status quo, which is of injustice, cannot continue. And this is, of course, something that Martin Luther King talked about in his letter from a Birmingham jail of creative tension necessary to disrupt social te- uh, the, the status quo. Uh, but uh, Chavez was willing to engage in politics that I think uh, Gandhi would not have thought appropriate for a, a person of nonviolence. The boycott, the strike has been a costly thing, not only to us, but also to the employers. But I think that because even though how ever unfortunate the experience might have been, and the struggle on both sides, that because of that experience, we have created the foundation to what I think is going to be a very good working relationship with the grower community in Delano. Cesar said, without the help of those millions upon millions of people who believe as we do that nonviolence is the way to struggle, I'm sure we wouldn't be here today The strikers and the people involved in this struggle sacrificed a lot, sacrificed all of their worldly possessions. 95% of the strikers lost their homes and their cars. But I think in losing these worldly possessions, they found themselves. I think it uh, encapsulates what the whole movement was about. And and, uh, also a message for everybody out there that we do have to sacrifice. If we don't sacrifice, then things do not change. And if we do not come together, we do not organize, then all of the justice 
uh, goals that we want to achieve are never going to happen. But the sacrificing, the nonviolence uh, is a very big part of it. In, in fact, it's a, I think it's the foundation. UFW co-founder Dolores Huerta. We have time for a little more from and about the Dalai Lama now. In a moment, Suzanne Kreider talks with writer Pico Iyer. But first, the Dalai Lama quizzed by Charlie Rose on his PBS show in 2005. How do we have compassion in a world that is so brutal? I think compassion, uh, we should not look just comp- word compassion just, just that way. I think the compassion is important because more compassionate mental attitude there you can see everything more better, more clearly. Because compassion <laughs> brings us some kind of calm mind. Yeah. And through calm mind, you can see the picture more, uh, more clearly. Much sort of emotion, such as uh, hatred, anger, attachment, then uh, your... N- normal mind or calm mind uh, not there no longer there too much sort of hate too much anger or too much attachment so uh, these uh, affected emotion uh, then it become obstacle to see the reality so then with these emotion the, your action become unrealistic Therefore, these, I think nobody wants trouble. But, but there are a lot of trouble. Why? Man made trouble. Why? Our approach is not realistic. This is my view. So, therefore, the compassion brings us a certain deeper sort of uh, value. Uh, firstly, open our mind, and that brings more inner strength, more self confidence. And that bring more calm mind. And through that way, whether, polit- whether in politics or economy or education or anything. Pico, you write in your book, The Open Road, about the different roles that the Dalai Lama has in his life. Talk about some of those roles and which one you think is most important or inspires people the most. Well, I think the one that's most important is not necessarily the most inspiring because I think that's the monastic And I think the core of him and his sense of his identity is genuinely as a simple monk. And everything he does in the world and outside the world springs out of his philosophical and monastic uh, foundations. Uh, But I think part of the fascination of the Dalai Lama for me is that, of course, he has, as you said, myriad roles. He's the de facto head of state. He's the head of Tibetan Buddhism. He is a monk. He's an amateur scientist. He's a regular person. And yet all of them are absolutely interconnected in him, which is, of course, perfectly consistent with his vision of interconnectedness. So when he goes to the White House, say, or talks to the European Parliament, when he's in the midst of these very real and real politique situations, he's speaking as a monk. And I think he's the one political leader on our planet who brings to the realm of politics, which is such a divisive us-versus-them world, this much more spacious and much more selfless and far-sighted vision of a monk. And at the same time, he's the only monk that I know of 
who adheres very rigorously to scientific principles and who actually famously says that as if new research finds the Buddha's own teachings to be outdated or incomplete, then throw out the Buddha's teachings. Science always trumps faith in, in his vision of things. And so when I travel with him, it's interesting to see how he very quickly goes between roles. He'll talk high philosophy to some monks and he'll step outside the auditorium and meet a little girl and instantly bend down and make real human contact with her and listen to her as attentively as if he were listening to a head of state. And then he'll get into a car and go across town and talk to a head of state. So he plays these roles in quick succession. But I think the most exciting thing is the way he pushes them together to see how each role can almost light up or liberate the others. And then among the audience... Some cases, as they come to listen, Dalai Lama talk with great expectation. That's a mistake. I have nothing to offer something very special. Just few empty words. <laughs> then, if some people have believed or view that Dalai Lama have some miracle power. That's totally nonsense. I'm just one human being. The Dalai Lama, recorded in Seattle by Peace Talks Radio in 2008. We'll close our Peace Greats special today where we began, contemplating the example of Mahatma Gandhi who fought apartheid in South Africa and British imperial rule in India in the first half of the 20th century. His grandson, Arun Gandhi, in a moment, but first Carol Boss with Gandhi scholar and peace activist John Deere. If Gandhi was still alive, what would he be doing now in this world that we're inhabiting? If he were alive today, I think he would be doing what he was doing, especially in the last years of his life, spending much more time in silence and prayer. In the last few years, he took Mondays as a day of silence, and he wouldn't talk to anybody. So he was trying to be united with God and to do it with a political awareness that if the deeper he can go into God, the more he will help bring peace to the earth. That's very interesting. He would be serving the poorest of the poor. You know, the year before he died, he walked through what is current-day Bangladesh, where they were just in total riots and killing, and nobody had ever heard of him there. And he spent six months walking barefoot with no possessions through that country and ended the riots. That's a great mystery how he did that, just his own personal presence, person to person, village to village. I think he would be walking around the world teaching nonviolence to the very, very poor and helping to feed people. And then he would be speaking out against all the insanity of 20,000 nuclear weapons, our destruction of the earth, the wars in Iraq and um, Colombia, and our disregard of the starving masses in Darfur and elsewhere. And uh, he would be inviting all the world's religions to discover their, their, the heart of their message, which is nonviolence. So he would be pursuing interfaith nonviolence, I think is the future of peace, and maybe the future of the world, that all the religions have to come together and uh, be stand together as a force, a creative force of nonviolence to help disarm the world. Let's return to our chat with the grandson of Mohandas Gandhi, 
Arun Gandhi is founder of the Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence in Memphis, Tennessee, and is speaking to us from his home in Rochester, New York. You know, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I'm wondering, do you remember the story of the starfish? Mm-hmm. Would you tell that for us? Yes. It's about uh, a man who went to the beach one day for uh, his constitutional walk, and early in the morning, he saw in that haze somebody near the waterline picking up something and throwing into the water. And so he went closer to find out what was going on, and he asked the man, he said, what are you doing? And the man said, well, obviously during the night the tide came in and washed all the starfish ashore, and now the tide has gone out and the starfish are all stranded here. And when the sun comes out, they will all perish. So before the sun comes out, I'm trying to throw them back into the water. And so this man looked at the whole beach and he said, there are thousands of them on the beach and you're obviously not going to be able to save all of them. So why take the trouble? And at that point, he had one starfish in his hand, which he was about to throw into the water. And he said, it makes a hell of a difference to this guy. And the moral of that story was that uh, this person saw the problem, but he decided to do whatever little he could to save as many as he could. Whereas the other person saw the whole problem and he said, I can't solve the whole problem, so why bother at all? And that's generally our attitude uh, in world affairs too. We look at the whole world picture and we say we can't change the world, so we don't need to do anything at all. But if we change ourselves and help people around us change, the world will eventually change also. You can hear more from and about all of our peace greats in the original full shows on each of them online at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com for more programs, audio, transcripts, photos, and links on all of our shows going back to 2002. We count on your support for our work on this show, and you can find out how to make a tax-deductible contribution by going online and clicking Donate at peacetalksradio.com. Support also from KUNM Radio and businesses like a Spinal Health and Movement Center and Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. For Carol Boss and Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.